Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin, from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. If I haven't been recording over the last few weeks, we had that great episode with Kate Wagner that came out before Christmas, and then I took a few weeks off to just kind of, I guess in theory, relax. It ended up being a lot of writing for uh, some other projects and then for the newsletter. So wasn't quite as relaxing as I wanted, but it did give me time to step back and think about what I want the podcast to be in 2022. So Cyclocross Worlds, what the heck's going on there? Is, uh, is, is Tom Pickock really going to show up to Arkansas to race in Cyclocross Worlds? Why is Cyclocross Worlds in Arkansas? Does this make sense? Is this a good idea? Does it make good sense for anyone to travel there who has any road ambitions, considering it's hard to imagine not getting COVID at this point at a major event taking place in the United States? Um, would not advise it, but it looks like Pickock is going to do it. And then I'll touch on the recent news that Quickstep is... I guess it has allegedly already picked their Tour de France sprinter, and they're taking Fabio Jakobsen over Mark Cavendish. Uh, from a sporting perspective, not shocking at all, but I'm really surprised with how the, that they've done it right now. Why not wait until like a week before the race? Um, and just how they've really approached that situation, is, it's kind of strange. And then I'll get into the Beyond the Peloton net ratings, which came out today, debuted today, the 2022 net ratings where I give a projection of what the team's total pro cycling stats point total will be at the end of this coming season if everything went exactly as it went the year before. It's obviously imperfect. Two seasons would not be exactly the same, but it does give you a nice outline as to a team's strength going into the season, like or at least the strength of the roster and what teams have done in the off season, what you can expect in the coming season. And if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free one. It comes out every week. If you like the podcast, definitely do it. There's also a paid one. It comes out daily during major races, three times a week during non-major race weeks and get you deals to things like stages cycling, fast cut coaching, Curave Switzerland. There'll be more stuff in there in the coming weeks. So if that's interesting to you, sign up for the paid one at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. Free or paid, it doesn't matter. Just sign up if you are interested. All right, so getting back into cyclocross. I am not a cyclocross expert. I've been getting some inquiries from readers and listeners to talk about cyclocross worlds. I there's a, a substack called CX Airs. They're much more knowledgeable about the sport than I am. I, I probably know more than like your average, I guess your average person on the street. I've raced cyclocross, I, I guess at like a Cat 1 level in the past. I used to be really into it. But since Vanderpool and Venart have entered the sport, I actually started paying attention to it less and less because it just became to me so boring that two guys just were dominated. You used to have these writers like Tunarts and Lars Vanderhaar coming up. And it was a really, I felt like a really competitive landscape back even when Sven Nies was, was dominating. But since the rise of Vanderpool and Van Art, and this is no fault of their own, but the fact that they were just so good and they were so good on the road, it, it made Cyclocross feel a little bit like um, an off-season activity as opposed to its own sport, which Traditionally, that what it, that's what it was. People would ride across fr French countrysides, and then they would like get off the bike and run across a field to keep their feet warm, so they could just train all winter. You know, it, but it it is a really hard sport. I, I respect the the riders that do it and the athletes the athletes that can really excel at it. It's a very difficult sport um, at its best. There's there's been some really good races this year. There was one where Pickcock won because of superior 
barrier jumping jumping ability at the end of a race. Um, I mean, nothing really beats the excitement of that. But the problem is when riders are so good, like, okay, I'm going to watch Van Art two minutes off the front. Like, that's not that exciting. Um, it can it can just turn stale so fast if one rider's better than the rest. So I'm not going to do an in depth breakdown of of the of the race. I just don't think I could really do it justice. I will say there is, I am really curious to see if Tom Pickock, Pickock goes. So the race is January 30th, which by my calculation is in two weeks. And to even make it more curious, interesting, it's in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I mean, this is a sport that not only is a European sport, but is, I would say, almost just basically in Belgium and a little bit in the Netherlands. There's not a huge cyclocross culture out of those two countries. I mean, maybe a little bit of France, but you even get into Slovenia, which obviously like great cycling culture there. It might not have like a traditional world tour racers, but you go to Slovenia and you like quickly realize there's a great cycling infrastructure and people are into the sport and they're obviously producing great riders. Um, even they, I mean, the, I don't think the local racing scene is like that intense there, but you go to Belgium, it's a big deal. Um, so the fact that it's in the U.S. is is really strange. Um, it, it, I always find it like a bit off-putting. I'm an American, obviously. You can tell by my voice. Um, there's been cyclocross worlds in the U.S. before. I believe it was in Louisville in 20, 2012, perhaps. Um, it was a big deal. Um, cyclocross was probably bigger in the U.S. then. It's definitely had a big popularity drop with the rise of gravel racing or even just gravel cycling. Gravel kind of ate crosses lunch in the U.S. Because uh, gravel's just better. If if you're not like a top level racer, you'd much rather be doing a gravel race versus a cross race where you have to like drive to, bring two bikes. Race is like 45 minutes long, and then you go home. It's a it's a huge pain in the butt. So, like a six hour long gravel race, it, that's an event. Maybe like in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which is a beautiful place, fun place to go. Uh, much more appealing, obviously. So the fact that it's in Arkansas is I just find it so weird. I know I like sh- I probably should be supportive of it because it's like wow, how great is this for the U.S. and like so great for the region but nothing about it makes me excited there's not like there's a top u.s at least in the on the men's side racer who could even win the race so um it really just like dilutes the field like if if it was in europe perhaps van art would do it and like that would be really exciting to watch van art um basically in the midst of his road training season trying to compete against full-time cross racers uh i would find that a lot more exciting but now it looks like both Matthew Vanderpool and Woot Van Aert will not go because Vanderpool um, really struggling physically. I think this is kind of an underrated story. It recently emerged that he is taking time off the bike because he has a back injury. And I, at first I just thought, well, maybe it's like a slip disc from when he crashed at the Olympics. But his doctor or his physiotherapist came out and said it was actually an overuse injury. And if you watch it, it makes sense. I theorized about a year ago that he could be shortening his career. Same with Van Art with, with doing these really, really demanding race schedules, basically 12 months out of the year, they're racing. And the way Vanderpool races is extremely taxing on his body. He has this like hunched back. He is kind of a, it's a, it's an athletic, but also like bizarre position on the bike. It's not how, you know, you'd see Fabian Cancellara or like Bradley Wiggins. It's, it's a really hunched position and he, he, he rides with a lot of torque, like a lot of physical torque and power. And I guess supposedly, according to his team, that's caused a back issue, some type of compression or I don't know. I'm not a doctor. didn't quite understand uh, what was going on there. But basically, he has to take like months off the bike, which means he's definitely not racing the spring classics. And 
I wouldn't even say it's a lock for him to be at the Tour de France. If he can't, let's say he can't ride a bike for four months, he's not going to be fit enough to race the Tour. And if he does, he's going to be a shell of his former self. So really disappointing. And then we find out this week that he had knee surgery, which was, I guess, an injury that was that was from specifically from the crash at the Olympics. But that's not good either. I mean, I assume they did the knee surgery because they figure we're off the bike for months. I might as well go in and clean up a knee, a knee issue I've been putting off because I've just been racing so much. So in, in some ways that's good, but in another, I mean, that's a lot of medical issues for someone who's 26, 27 to be having, especially with how demanding his racing has been over the years. Um, he might only be 27 this year, but you know the physical toll on his body has been extremely high, especially the way he races. So a little bit concerning for me. I, I both Van Aert and Vanderpool, I think, could be as prolific in the classics as like the greats, the recent greats like Tom Boonen and Fabian Cancellara, perhaps even more so because they can compete even in like Liege Best on Liege and I guess in theory, like in theory, like Lombardia. But um, the, neither, I mean, they've only won one monument each. Um, so they have a lot of room to make up. But this is concerning to me because it could almost mean that Vanderpool has hit his physical peak. And you know won't be bad, but could struggle really to be as dominant as he's been in his short, short, short road career from here on. I mean, obviously, I'm being maybe overly negative, but I, I am quite concerned about these injuries. These are not like normal injuries you'd hear about people having in the off season. And I wrote about this yesterday in like a subscribers only newsletter. But Mark Hershey had surgery on his hip to shave bone down to create more room. Also, something I'm very unfamiliar with. I'm not a doctor, but that's a strange surgery. Um, I can't think of any writer that's ever come back from a mid-career hip surgery. If anyone knows that, just just reach out and let me know. I, I can't think of anyone who's successfully come back from hip surgery. Floyd Landis being probably the most famous example of a writer who he won the Tour de France, had a hip surgery, and then was never very good after that, perhaps for other reasons though. So long story short, Van Aert and Vanderpool not racing at Worlds. Apparently, Tom Pitcock is. Uh, the, there's a new guy, Eli Iserbet, very good young Belgian rider. Um, but outside of him, Van Aert and Vanderpool, I think the, the two other big favorites should be Tunarts, who was, who was Matthew, or who was Woot Van Aert before Woot Van Aert. He was like the hot young art coming up after Sven Nies. And Lars Vanderhaar, who is uh, Dutch. He was kind of the Matthew Vanderpool before Matthew Vanderpool. He was this explosive cross racer who was supposed to kind of emerge onto the scene after the elder statesman had retired, but, but that obviously was disrupted by the arrival of two of the probably, probably two of the best cyclocross racers of all time. Um, I mean, Vanderhaar finished third in the 2013 World Championships. Sorry, it was 2013 in Louisville, not 2012. He finished third, so you're thinking, wow, this guy is the future. He was behind, he was behind the legends Van Nies and Klaus Van Vantorut, Vantorut, another Belgian, um, gets second in 2016, and then Vanderpool and Van Aert uh, start to dominate the sport, um, along with Pitcock coming up. So gold's back on the table for Vanderhaar. Um, that would be a really, I would find that a pretty interesting subplot, something I'd like to see. I was always a big fan of his. He's 30 now, um, I guess no longer an up-and-comer, but in the absence of the favorites, he could certainly be a threat to win. Well, I think something to keep an eye on here is so Tom Pickock is supposed to go. He's been saying he's going to go. I haven't been able to find any information about him not going, but it doesn't seem like anyone's completely convinced that he will go. Like n n not random Twitter people, nor anyone I've spoken to. The, 
The odd thing here is, so he's currently at Ineos Road Camp. Um, Tom Peacock's certainly talented enough to go from a road training camp to winning cyclocross world championships, which is insane because those two things are not really congruent. <laughs> not a normal person could not race um, high volume for a road ra- a road racing season and then race cyclocross in the middle of that. That is highly unusual. It's it's crazy that he can do that. Um, but he is that talented. But he's, I think he's incredibly motivated to win this since he is the reigning Olympic mountain bike gold medalist. So um, to be gold, a gold medalist in an event and then a world championship in another event in the same year is completely um, is, is impressive and very unusual. So I'm sure he's motivated by that. And it's not like this is going to be his last chance to ever win it. But if he does get more serious about the road side of the sport, he does have a finite amount of chances to win it. I mean, Vanderpool has beaten beat him the last three years. Van Art won the three years before that. So this is a unique opportunity for him that I expect he's quite motivated about. But to fly to the US at the end of January, I mean, it seems like the middle of winter to us, but the road season starts February and not just rinky dink road season. At the end of February, we have serious races. Omlut Het Newsblad is, is the end of February. And then you have Strada Bianchi, which I'm sure he wants to win. Um, and, and then the, the monuments come up way sooner than you think. Milano San Remo is early March, early to mid March. And then you go right into Flanders and Roubaix, um, along with Liege Bastogne Liege, which I'm sure he also wants to win. So this is, it is quite the pinch for him. Um, the the race is taxing just to to take a break from road training to then peak for a short cyclocross race do the race um travel back that's highly disruptive it might not seem like it to us but you know you're at least you're sacrificing probably a week and a half of real road training to get ready for that and then to race and then come home um that that could easily knock you off your access for the coming spring classics so it's a, it's a huge investment and a huge risk um, not just from the mistraining, but you have to imagine you're getting COVID. If you go to a big event in the U.S. right now, uh, you're, you're probably getting COVID. It's just really difficult to imagine that not happening. And while it might not be like super scary for the general population, uh, if you're a top, top cyclist, I would be terrified of getting COVID. Um, it, it sounds like it's like the worst thing you could have as a cyclist. You, you know, have a really bad virus. Um, that just makes you kind of generally tired for an inter- in- <laughs> undetermined amount of time. Like Peter Sagan says, he's just not the same rider anymore as he was before COVID. It just makes him too tired. He can't recover from efforts as much. Um, so, so it is a big risk to go. I- I'm not quite sure I would recommend that he do that. I mean, I guess he could always get the, you could say that he could always get COVID back in Europe and he probably will during the race season. It's hard to imagine that not happening, at least a mild case, um, especially, I mean, even these these sequestered training camps in the preseason that a lot of teams are doing, uh, you could easily get COVID just eating a meal inside. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that isn't quite the, the investment that I think it is, but I would still, some, that was something I would consider um, and, and if I had serious road ambitions, I would not be going to this race. It just seems crazy to be flying halfway around the world to race a U.S. cyclocross worlds, which, in my opinion, hurts the prestige of the race. I just I can't get as excited about it. I mean, I'm sure they don't care across worlds win as across worlds win, but um, when you when you see those European races, they are so cool. Like the one we had last year on the beach on the coast, it's, it's just not the same. 
But long story short, I mean, while there's a lot of good reasons for him not to go, and there is a lot of skepticism that he will go, I think at this point, if he says he's going, he's going. Um, it, it's difficult to imagine him backing out right now, especially with Van Art not going so he can prepare for the road season, just on Van Art for a little bit. He, I, I did write a piece earlier this week about how you basically can't trust anything that's ever said at team camp. So like every, all these riders come out and say, I'm doing X, Y, and B race. And then um, everyone freaks out about it and sets it in stone. And then that's never what ends up happening. Um, like Jonas Vindegaard was not on Yumbo's long list for the tour last year and then got second place of the race. So um, just stuff, stuff happens. It's, it's impossible to plan a season out at this point. Uh, but Van Aert did say some interesting things where he said he's felt fatigued by the end of the classics in recent years. And this makes total sense. This is something that I've been worried about with him where he does these deep, deep cyclocross runs. I mean, if you do world championships, you're racing basically into February. And then he does Strada Bianchi, which is an early race, and then tries to hold that form all the way until Flanders and Roubaix. And you, you saw last year that it took a toll on him. He was not the same rider he was, Flanders that he was even at Ghent Wevelgen. It, it is interesting. He's come, he, it seems like this wasn't just me noticing something that wasn't there, that this was real. Um, and he came out and said he's not going to do Strada Bianchi. He's obviously not doing cross world championships. Um, he's really making some big changes here. So I'm curious to see how that affects him in those later classics and if we can see him looking stronger and a little bit more invincible in those later races. I mean, if you compare his form from like the Tour de France to the Spring Monuments, he just has not been the same rider. I mean, he did win Milan San Remo, but that was when the race was in the fall. That was not in the spring. So um, if he could try to get some of that form that he showed at the tour where he was maybe one of the best riders I've ever seen to win a mountain stage of time trial on a sprint stage in the same tour is almost impossible. Um, yeah, he could, he could win multiple monuments this year. So just something to keep an eye on there with Van Aert. He's really serious about this, this road season uh, when in the past he's been balancing a few more things. Some other um, interesting comments from Team Camp is Quick Step is apparently, I, I was shocked by this, shocked, not shocked at the outcome, just shocked how it was released, but they are apparently just going to take Fabio Jakobsen to the Tour de France instead of Mark Cavendish. I'm, I thought this would happen, but, and I thought this would be a big hurdle for Cavendish to re-sign with him. Um, I thought potentially he might even want to look at another team because it doesn't seem like there's a clear path for him to go to the tour. And it seems like the only reason he's going to come back to race is because he wants to win one more tour stage so he can have the, chan the record for the number of Tour de France stage wins. I wonder if in, in his mind, he's slated to the Giro, that he can go to the Giro if he wins like five sprint stages at the Giro, that he can force the team into at least taking him along with Jakobsen. Um, you know, maybe Jakobsen has a crappy year. They don't take him, they take Cavendish instead. I'm sure that's what Cavendish is thinking, um, that he can just bet on himself, hope Jakobsen struggles, and then he's the top dog sprinter at Quick Step. That's probably not likely to happen. Fabio Jakobsen is perhaps the best sprinter in the world. He was so good at the Vuelta last year and before his crash at the Tour of Poland in 2020. He was incredible. He was ridiculous. I lost access to it, but I used to have this great database where you could see win rates per sprinter and i'm in the process of rebuilding that on my own but he was like that he had the best conversion rate for a sprinter out of every sprinter so clearly a, a very 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 good rider i think the crash kind of overshadowed how good he was as a rider it was such a brutal crash and it was unclear if he was ever going to come out or ever race again and he was in a coma for a long time but make no mistake about it he is very good at sprinting 
I did see some people saying this, well, they should just take both of them. Like that's absolutely not going to happen. Um, they don't have a GC cut clear cut GC rider. They're not going for the GC, but I wouldn't be shocked if, if Remco Evanepoel is there. So if you have Remco kind of dipping his toes in the GC waters or at least some type of stage win situation, you don't have room for two sprinters. And the two sprinter thing just isn't a good idea. It almost never works because you're burning a roster spot you could use for either someone to work in the train for your real sprinter or or a more versatile rider. I mean, like Julian Alaphilippe's going to make the team if he wants to go, but a rider like that who can win on multiple types of stages. And what you really don't want is you you don't want to take two sprinters and then have those two guys fighting it out at the tour about who should be the real sprinter. I mean, um, sure, it'd be, it's great to imagine Jakobsen working for Cavendish. He wins a stage and then they flip-flop and Cavendish is working for Jakobsen. That's kind of what Alpes and Phoenix did with Tim Merlier and Jasper Philipson. But if we even use that example, which you could argue was somewhat successful, I feel like they left stage wins on the table because Merlier was the faster rider and then for multiple stages was working for Philipson because it was like his day to be a leader. Um, and you can get to a mess real fast. Um, th- that ended up getting solved because Merlier crashed out of the race or left the race. He left the race for some reason, perhaps, and it was some type of injury. Um, but you know, there was like a lot of stages there where Merlier or Philipson was just blowing stage wins that Merlier could have won. Um, it's only going to take a few of those for for real fight to break out inside that team if they have both of them at the tour. So. I'm surprised at the timing of this decision. Not quite sure why they didn't just leave it until the week before the race. And then you can kind of walk, you can like live on the fence with with each rider and say like, yeah, yeah, we're thinking about you for the race. We just want to see how you perform this season. Now, maybe they wanted to get out in front of it and kind of set expectations, especially for Cavendish before the season starts so that he doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere. Um, If you remember David Miller, when he was on Garmin, which is now EF, he was like one of their marquee riders and was like best friends with Vodders, Jonathan Vodders, who runs the team. Um, about a week before the race for the tour, he finds out he's not going in his last season and it like burned the, like ruined the relationship between him and Vodders. So um, maybe they're trying to avoid a situation like that, which I couldn't blame them. And the last thing I want to talk about is I just released my uh, Beyond the Peloton net ratings where I take the pro cycling stats points from each rider for every team, add them together, and I get a, a total of points the team would have had if they had every rider they have for this coming season in the last season. The reason I do this is it lets me kind of judge the strength of each roster. There's certainly a, a regression factor here where older riders are going to get slightly worse, younger riders are going to get slightly better that I can't really that I'm not accounting for. So it's not perfect, but it does give you a good sense of how each team approached the off season and how successful they were in the transfer market and what you can expect from them going forward. Um, there's a big post about it out today. So if you want to read it, I'll put the notes, I'll put a link in the show notes. But just a few things I wanted to point out and kind of talk about really quick were just how good of an offseason um, Jumbo Visma had. They've been a pretty good team the last few years. Um, obviously with Wout Van Aert and Primoz Roglic, you can't go wrong, uh, but they haven't won the Tour de France and their monument halls have been, you know, maybe a little bit lower than they should be. Uh, but they added some, some really good talent this off season with, with Rowan Dennis and Tej Benut. Um, oddly though, Christophe Laporte has more pro cycling stats points from last year than both of those riders combined. He's super underrated rider. 
Um, he's really going to help the team in one-day races. That will be big for Wout Van Aert to have, you know, not just support, but like a true second, second option that will take a lot of, a lot of heat off Wout in those big one-day races. I think we're going to see, a, as hard as it is to imagine, but a big jump from them this year. They're not just all dependent on Roglic either. They have Jonas Vindegaard, who I, I have doubts about his ability to like handle the pressure of being a leader at the Tour de France. But physically, I mean, he's, he's all there. Like We can talk all day about you know, up-and-coming talents like Joao Almeida, who, who is great, who I love. Um, I'm like a one-man Joao Almeida fan club. And Remco Evenepoel, but if you want to talk about like the best up and coming rider who's not already a Grand Tour winner, it's Jonas Vindegaard. I mean, the guy rolled up to the Tour as like a random support rider and got second place and was absolutely unbelievable on some of those climbs. I mean, he set one of the fastest modern times at Mont Ventoux, dropped Tadej Pogacar, who um, is that's not that does not happen often. He's like one of the only riders to ever drop Pogacar. And his time trialing him, and he beat Pogacar in that final time trialing. The guy is an absolute stud. So if he can hold it together emotionally and, and mentally, he could be a legitimate Tour de France contender. Um, and I don't throw that around lightly. I, I'm like of the opinion that almost no one is a Tour de France contender. I think like four riders in the world can ever win the Tour de France. Um, and that all these contender lists you see are basically just BS. Um, but Vindegaard would be on the list would be on the short list of riders who could win it. The guy is incredibly talented. So the, the team is, it's incredibly dynamic and strong going into the season in perhaps a way that, you know, a team like Ineos is not, um, they've been, they've not been signing those young riders who are as good as Jonas Vindegaard are in recent years that, you know, they have like Theo Gegenhardt, who is good. He's, he won the Giro, but he's not on the same level as, as a Vindegaard, which is crazy to say. I mean, flashback to 2020 and play me that quote and I'd be like, who's Jonas Vindegaard? What are you talking about? Um, and and an, an, another super surprising thing is just how poor of an offseason Quickstep had. They lost a net of 2,200 PCS points, which and that might sound like gibberish, but that's bad. That, that is, they had the worst offseason by far. The next closest team is Astana with, with negative 1,400, and then you have DSM with negative 1,100. Those are, those are bad, and Quickstep's almost twice as bad. So, yeah, I have, I have some doubts about him. They have some talented riders, obviously. I mean, Remco Evenepoel, Julian Alaphilippe, Casper Askren, you can't really complain about that, and Fabio Jakobsen, who could win three Tour de France sprint stages. But there's just a lot of pressure on those riders. In years past, they, they've really thrived and, and done well because they've just been able to spread the pressure. And it allows riders like Alaphilippe to really blossom because there's not that much pressure on them. And, and when there is a lot of pressure on Alaphilippe, he doesn't do particularly well. Obviously, at the World Championships, he has no problem. But you know, he's not been the favorite at these World Championship races. And there's not been a ton of pressure on him, at least from the team, because what does the team care about the World Championships? So I'm just I'm curious to see how that plays out. Um, Lefebvre always seems to have his finger on the pulse about like where riders are going and he tends to part with riders just before they get really bad and sign riders right before they get really good and they have a lot of young talent coming in but you know there could at least in the best case even in the best case scenario if those young riders are good you know they're not going to be world beaters this year most likely um, there could be a bit of a gap there where, where they suffer a slight drop off. And, you know, they, they draw their strength from strength in numbers. So 
so I've been surprised with how willing he was to um, kind of shed stars, like just sending out Joao Almeida, like seemingly disinterested, uninterested in re-signing him, who I think is a generational talent, and just being willing to be like, now we're going to roll with Louis Verarc, Maro Schmid, Stan von Trinkt, Ethan Vernon, Martin Schwerk, who's a very talented but young Slovenian cyclist. I mean, that's, that's their incoming class. So, uh, yeah, I, I have some concerns about them. I, I think we could see them suffer a bit of a drop-off this year. That's a, it was a shockingly bad offseason um, that I think has kind of been a little bit undercovered. And the whole Cavendish situation did pan out incredibly well for them last year, but A, that, that could go bad at any moment. He's very old for a sprinter. Um, he's very opinionated. He's a huge star. None of those things I like. If I was running a team, I'd want to get away from that as quickly as possible. Um, but Cavendish also papered over a lot of the cracks. I mean, he had an amazing season and allowed them to, con- to continue to be the best team in the world tour. Um, but without that season from Cavendish, that easily could have been a disappointing season for them. UAE Team Emirates is on the flip side of that. They had the best offseason, quote unquote, best according to this um, analysis. And, you know, I agree with it. I think they had a great offseason. They added Joao Almeida, which I, who I can't believe was available. They bring in Pascal Ackerman to rack up points at, I mean, these, you think like, well, Almeida and Ackerman, you have a sprinter and a GC star. Like, what do you need that? You have Tade Pogacar. There's not going to be room for either of those guys in the tour team. Um, but you forget how bad they've been in Grand Tours where Pogacar has not been present. This is really going to help them add depth in those second and third grand tours of the year and kind of turn into like a big grown-up team versus just a one-man team. I think Pogacar gained like 40 for 44% of their PCS points in 2021, which means um, they're wildly dependent on one rider. But if you want to know more about that, I'll be breaking down each team over the weeks for paying subscribers, and I will put the free link to the initial breakdown in the show notes. So thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week, hopefully with a guest. I'm going to try to add more guests in this coming year. So thanks for listening. Have a great weekend and talk to you next week. Bye.